I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. Thank you. I'm speaking with uh, Stephen Harding, author of Escape from Paris, A True Story of Love and Resistance in Wartime France. Here's, here's the cover of the book. And it was just, I guess it was published a week ago? It was on October 8th. Okay. Um, so first, tell me, um, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? Well, I, uh, I was born and raised in Southern California, uh, and my father and all of my uncles had been in World War II, uh, most of them in the Pacific. So I grew up hearing their stories of, of combat in the South Pacific. Uh, and then when I was 19, uh, I enlisted in the Army. Uh, which in retrospect was probably not my smartest idea at the time. Um, but I ended up as a, an infantryman and I was assigned to the first infantry division, which at that time, this was in 1971, uh, was going to Germany on an operation called Reforger, which is just re return of forces to Germany. It was a big Cold War exercise where um, troops were flown in from the United States and uh, fell in on preposition equipment, and then we played war games as if we were defending Western Europe against the Russians. Okay. Um, during that exercise, I was involved in an armored personnel uh, accident. Uh, in fact, I was rolled over on by an armored personnel carrier. The embarrassing part of that story, Chris, was it was my own armored personnel carrier, uh, but we won't go into those details right now. Okay. So as a result, I spent almost a year in various army hospitals in Germany and the United States, uh, most of it flat on my back because I had a fractured spine and broken ribs and fractured pelvis and all kinds of terrible things. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was obviously long before the Internet, uh, and there wasn't a whole lot to do. So we all waited around for the daily library lady to come around with a, a cart full of books. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, in an army hospital, uh, a lot of the books that come out of the library are military history. Mm -hmm. So I got into reading all the classics, um, things like um, Helmet for My Pillow, mm -hmm. uh, Is Paris Burning, all of the all of the really you know big names in military history. Mm -hmm. When I finally got out of the Army, um, I went back to school. I went to the University of California in Santa Barbara, which, just as an aside, is a delightful place to go to college. I highly recommend it. Uh, I did two degrees in history uh, with a specialization in my graduate program in modern military history. I then, when I graduated from college, I went to work um, as a historian for the federal government. I ran a museum on Treasure Island in San Francisco for a while as a as a museum director, but mainly I was a historian. And then I switched over to being a public affairs officer for the Army. And in that uh, capacity, I traveled to such delightful places as Bosnia, um, Iraq, Northern Ireland, uh, essentially as a um, military journalist. Uh, I started writing um, back in the mid-'80s. I was writing newspaper articles for the San Francisco Chronicle. I wrote for some uh, British aviation magazines, things like that. Mm. And uh, about 12 years ago, uh, I decided to sit down and write uh, a book based on a story that I had heard when I was a staff historian for the U.S. Army, uh, again in the early to mid-'80s. Uh, which was the story of the defense of Castle Itter, which you might have heard about. It was the no. only time, it was the only time in uh, World War II when American soldiers and German soldiers 
actually joined forces and fought together. Okay. And they did it to defend a medieval castle in Austria filled with French VIPs. Uh, that made the New York Times bestseller list, which sort of doomed me to having to write more books, <laughs> which is not, not a problem at all because I really, uh, I enjoy the, the writing process. Mm-hmm. So, um, since then there have been, with Escape in Paris, this is the fifth book that I've done with DeCapo, which is part of the, uh, Hachette organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we got to Escape in Paris. Okay. So tell me then about the book. Uh, Escape from Paris, like the um, other four books that preceded it, is a true story from World War II. I've always enjoyed telling stories about um, smaller groups of people or even individuals that in some way sort of illuminate a larger point about World War II. Mm-hmm. When I finished my last book, I, I had three different concepts of where I wanted to go with the next book. On, on the one hand, I wanted to write a book about the 8th Air Force, uh, because the, the whole 8th Air Force campaign out of the United Kingdom, uh, over-occupied Europe and, and Germany has always captivated me. I also wanted to do a book that somehow dealt with the French resistance. And thirdly, I was always interested in writing a book about the role of women in World War II. Mm-hmm. So when my agent said, what are you going to do next? I gave him all three of those possibilities. <laughs> and his response was, as long as it's in Paris. Okay. Uh, so, so I said, okay, I, I will go looking for a story that hopefully sort of wraps all three of those different threads together and occurred in Paris. Mm-hmm. I was initially kind of uh, doubtful that I would find that story because, as you know, there weren't a whole lot of Americans that occupied Paris during World War II, right. um, except uh, those that were there before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, at which point we declared war in Germany, and Americans had been neutral uh, neutrals up to that point, and then they were either interned or sent back to the States. So it took me uh, about 18 months. Uh, I, I figured out the only way I'm going to be able to talk about Americans in occupied Paris is if they were dropped in, mm-hmm. either as OSS agents or, or uh, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then I found um, some mention of American uh, aviators who were shot down Mm-hmm. and were helped by the French resistance. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's unroll that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in researching that, I found out the story of four American bombers, all of which belonged to the 94th Bomb Group, uh, flying out of Ruffham in Sussex, England. Okay. Uh, all four of these bombers were part of an 86 aircraft mission on July 14, 1943, to bomb the German uh, airfield at Le Bourget Paris, uh, Le Bourget Airport outside Paris. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, all four of these particular aircraft were shot down within a span of about 20 minutes. Um, I started looking into the people on each aircraft, looking for that one um one particular story that would help me sort of open up the whole thing. And I found it in uh, a man named Joe Cornwall. Joe was a left-waist gunner on one of the B-17s that was shot down. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I looked into his life, I started researching what had happened to him. And uh, the, the records of American aircraft shot down in Europe in World War II are fairly complete. Because whenever one of these airplanes went down, the uh, Army Air Force's um, created what's called a missing air crew report or a macker. And it lists everybody on board the airplane, the circumstances of the shoot down, anything that was known of survivors. And then 
if any of those aviators eventually made it back to England, they would do what was called an escape and evasion report, wherein they wrote up everything they could remember about their experience in either occupied France, Belgium, the Netherlands, wherever it happened. And they would list the names of people, if they knew the names of the people that helped them, addresses of safe houses where they stayed. So once I had sort of uh, honed in on Joe Cornwall, um, I found that he had a stepson who lived in uh, Olympia, Washington. And I reached out to him and I asked if I could um, come and, and look at some of the memorabilia that, that Joe had left with him after he died. Mm-hmm. And it was during that visit um, that uh, this gentleman named Nate Guypen opened a, a box that had photographs and uniform items and just a wealth of stuff about Joe Cornwall. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was in this box was a very simple black leather wallet. And it was the wallet that Joe Cornwall was carrying when he died in the late 1970s. And I asked Nate if I could look through the, the wallet. And he said, sure, go ahead. And there was a, a driver's license. There was a social security card. But tucked in a little pocket way in the back was a crinkled, yellowed old piece of paper. And I asked if I could take a look at it. And Nate said, sure. So I pulled it out. And I opened it up. And it was a letter in French, written just after Joe Cornwall had evaded, meaning gone from occupied France back to England, Mm -hmm. and it was written by a woman named Yvette Morin. And I thought, oh, okay, this is an interesting thing that you don't often find. So then I started looking into her, and that's where the core of the story was born. Okay. So I noticed in the description of the book that you mix in, as it mentions, um, you get into air, you start with some aerial combat and, you know, and you talk about broader issues, but you, you also talk about the personal issues. How, uh, how did you break down the book as far as mixing those two elements? Well, you know, um, I've been a, a magazine writer and editor, um, in one way or another for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're doing, um, a feature magazine piece as opposed to an academic magazine piece, mm-hmm. you always want to open with, um, action, whether it's a sports story or a, a history story or anything else, because the whole idea is to engage the, the reader. Mm-hmm. So in, in each of these five books, I have tried to do that very thing. I want to, sort of pull the reader into the story by giving them a taste, almost a setup of what the larger story is going to be about. Uh, and it's worked rather successfully, I think. Um, in Escape from Paris, that setup is um, sort of an introduction that covers, uh, it sort of introduces us to Joe Cornwall, the mission that he's flying on, um, and and how he's thinking about things. But then it also... Uh, introduces us to the German pilot who shot down at least two of the four aircraft mm. and it introduces to the family of Yvette Morin and her parents who would eventually play such a large role in helping um, helping Joe Cornwall evade and make it back to England. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned so, okay so that was the, that was the reason for the for the you know, sort of big opening. okay as far as the uh... The ind- there are four individuals you focus on. Is that what you said? Is that yeah? There's there's a uh, there's a core group of three Americans. Um, Joe Cornwall 
Um, there's a guy, uh, his very good friend, Harry Eastman, and a third guy named Dick Davitt. All three of these guys were aerial gunners on B-17s. All three of them got shot down that day, although they were not on the same aircraft. Mm-hmm. So focus and Ted, they were such good friends that they referred to themselves as the Gunners Trio. Um, these are the guys who, when they weren't flying, were in, in a pub together somewhere in England. Uh, and as it happened, because they were all shot down on the same day, their, their stories intertwine in Paris. The, the sort of fourth character is a vet, and by extension, her parents. Mm-hmm. So that's the core group of individuals that I deal with. Now, it, it almost, it's funny, it seems like a story almost asking to be written, the way th- th- this set up with these characters and, and the events and everything. That's, uh, that's what I thought, uh, Chris, when I came across it. Um, you know, my, my previous books also deal with individuals or small groups of people because, you know, war is a very personal thing, and, and a lot of us who are interested in military history forget that. We get all wrapped up in the majesty of blue and red arrows going different ways and arcane little symbols for military units and things like that. I like to, to remind people that these are real people we're dealing with. Um, they're, you know, the pictures we see of them are usually in black and white, but their lives were in color. They were alive. They, you know, my father, uh, other people's parents, grandparents. So I try to make them as alive as I possibly can. And, in this particular case, when I when I found that not only had Joe Cornwall had this adventure, uh, although I don't think he thought of it as an adventure when it was happening, right. um, there ultimately was a love story involved in it. Um, and that, to me, added a, a, a certain special something to it. Plus, as I learned more about the, the Moran family and, and what happened to them after Joe Cornwall left, um, that opened it up in, into an even wider story. One thing that fascinates me about the resistance, either in World War II or, or any uh, war where people are secretly um, engaged in activities, um, how d- does your book go deep into the dangers of what the, the French were doing as far as helping the Americans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're all used to seeing you know French resistance movies where – you have people in berets throwing hand grenades into, you know, German-occupied bars and stuff like that. The reality was um, the French resistance was not anywhere near as large and homogeneous um, an organization as most of us believe. Um, there were a lot of uh, French people who, although they may not have liked the Germans, they decided to go along to get along. Mm-hmm. The number of people who actually took up arms, or in, in a lot of cases didn't have any sort of weapons, but still did everything they could to oppose the Germans, was much smaller than than you know we we once believed. Um, those people who were resistance, as, as they call in, uh, as they say in French, and you'll have to pardon my French accent because I don't speak French. Okay. <laughs> um, I speak I speak German, which is not all that useful sometimes in France. Um, these people were constantly in danger because there were two German intelligence organizations I'm sure you heard of. One was the Abwehr, which was German military intelligence, and then there was the Geheime Staatspolizei, the Gestapo. They were both hunting members of the resistance in France and, and the other occupied territories, but they were doing it for different reasons. The Abwehr wanted to infiltrate the French resistance organizations 
and take over their radios so that they could uh, know when drops of agents or weapons or equipment were coming in and capture everybody who was coming in or even turn the organization into their own espionage organization. The Gestapo, on the other hand, uh, notably brutal Gestapo, uh, just wanted to capture, interrogate, and then kill these people. So um, in, in, in occupied Paris, when Allied aviators were, were shot down over occupied France, the general rule of uh, the resistance used was get them to Paris or, or some other large city. Because, of course, um, a young American, a young, fit American airman who did not speak French mm. would stand out like a sore thumb in a small village. Mm. But in a, a, a metropolitan city of three million people, easier to hide, you know, more places to hide. And France, even in 1943, when this when the story starts, mm. um, was still um, there were there were very few men between the ages of say, 18 and 40 on the streets mm -hmm. because they were either still in German POW camps mm -hmm. or they had been drafted for slave labor in Germany or they were on the run and possibly with the armed resistance in the, in the countryside. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the, the people who undertook resistance against the Germans in Paris and, and in the larger occupied territories, French, Belgium, uh, uh, Belgium and the, um, the Netherlands, mm -hmm. were women. And there were a couple of reasons why that worked out pretty well. Number one, the Germans tended not to suspect women, mm -hmm. especially if they were very young or very old. Mm -hmm. uh, and the women could get around more easily because they were everywhere. Um, there were far more you know, women usually on, on any given street than there might be men. Mm -hmm. So that sort of added a certain security, but at the same time, once the Abwehr or the Gestapo figured out that it was the women who were doing these things, they were subject to the same um, brutal conditions as, as any man would have been. Yeah, one thing I noted about the description of your book is is what you just mentioned, how many women were involved. And it makes me think that maybe the resistance, the French resistance, was had there was more of a woman's story to it than I think people have been discussing up till recently. Oh, certainly, certainly. The uh, you know, when when you talk about uh, again going back to that cliche movie we've all seen of, of French resistance men blowing up railway tracks and and ambushing German columns, there were women who were engaged in a combat action, no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But it was um, in the more covert, clandestine sort of film noir activity that went on in the cities. There was often a majority woman um, uh, organization simply because there weren't that many men. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, especially in the, in the French resistance and in Belgium and in Holland, all of the resistance movements uh, had a high proportion of women in them. Mm -hmm. Do you know if uh, does you, were many were there many women who, who led some of these groups? Um, do you I, I'm I'm sure there probably were. That was not the major focus of, of where I was going, so I didn't pursue it too much. But there there are some very well known uh, women resistance, um, and uh, you know a, a quick perusal of any of any web search engine will bring up some amazing stories. Uh, Virginia Hall, for example, uh, who was an American, um, who she was in the OSS. But the OSS and uh, Britain's SOE 
we're also advising and supporting the various resistance movements in the occupied territories. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't only women native to that particular uh, country. Mm -hmm. uh, it was often um, women, British, American, uh, Danish, Norwegian, uh, who went in to help uh, facilitate operations. So there were a fair number of women involved. So um, the three gunners, um, how much... Uh how much were they involved in their own sort of escape and, and rescue, or was it more? Were they more passive participants in what was going on? Well, it, it, you can divide it, Chris, into two two time periods. Hmm. From the time they're shot down until the time they somehow manage to hook up with the resistance, or until they're captured by the Germans, they are completely on their own, generally. So, um, as I, I, I describe in the book, for example, the, the aircraft that Joe Cornwall was on was um, well over 20,000 feet above occupied France when it went down. And, and it was not shot down. Um, the circumstance there was, was uh, particularly interesting. A, um, an aircraft in the formation ahead of them um, severely damaged an incoming German fighter that was attacking from head on. The German fighter disintegrated into three big pieces, and one of those big pieces took off almost the entire left wing of Joe Cornwall's airplane. Mm. And B-17s don't fly well with only one and a half wings. Yeah. Uh, the airplane went into a, a, an immediate snap roll, lost several thousand feet of altitude, and of course everybody inside is trapped by the centrifugal force. Um, the pilot uh, of Joe's airplane, a, a very brave young man named Ed Purdy, managed really through sheer strength to get the airplane level for a moment, and that allowed Joe and two other airmen to bail out, uh, which in itself was quite difficult. And, of course, they're well above 10,000 10, feet, and so they were told not to deploy their parachutes until they were below 10,000 feet because they would... Um, there was a lack of oxygen, they'd lose consciousness. I particularly, uh, when I was writing the description of what it was like for Joe, essentially to free fall for eight or 9,000 feet, mm. this man had never been in a parachute before, as, as was true of most uh, allied aviators. The only time they used a parachute was the one time they had to. Mm. So he's falling, free falling, eight, 9,000 feet, trying not to breathe very hard because there's not enough air. Mm. And then when he figures he's you know, at or below 10,000 feet, he pulls the ripcord and uh, hope, hopes that the parachute works. Mm -hmm. In his case, and in the case of the airplane's tail gunner, a guy, uh, guy named uh, Templeton, Larry Templeton, their parachutes did work. Um, the third man was another gunner. Uh, his last name was Sant'Angelo. His did, uh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Um, there was a third man, a radio operator, a gentleman named Sprague, whose parachute did not open, and he fell 22,000 feet to his death. Mm. Um, so when if you survive the parachute jump, and these are these flights are all in daylight, unlike the British nighttime bombing. So these guys are landing in occupied France generally about 9 or 10 in the morning, mm -hmm. and in open fields or sometimes in the middle of villages. If they were not noticed, they would immediately ditch their parachutes, try and get off their uh, harnesses, and get rid of anything that identified them as as American or Allied aviator, mm -hmm. and then they would hide out until nighttime. The orders that they were given in England uh, were essentially, if you're shot down and you are not immediately captured, head towards the nearest big city you can find, for the same reasons we talked about earlier. 
So in Joe's case, uh, it took uh, a while um, for him to finally hook up with uh, some French civilians who were friendly. They fed him, and they were able to contact people they knew who were in the resistance who eventually came and got him. Mm-hmm. And and the same is uh, true for for Harry uh, and, and Dick. Uh, so they all separately were taken under the wing of the French resistance. And it's only when they all got to Paris, uh, well, actually on the train to Paris, that they were reunited. Uh, and uh, Joe and Harry ended up being hidden in the same place. The place they were hidden is fascinating, which is also sort of a character in the story, because it was um, at the Hotel des Invalides, which is a, a huge sort of campus right in the middle of Paris, uh, just south of, of the River Seine. And it's home to museums, um, uh, a cathedral, uh, um, a hospital for World War I veterans, and it's also home to Napoleon's tomb. Mm. Uh, so Joe and Harry were hidden by the Morin family uh, and their daughter, uh, the parents and their daughter Yvette, because they were the caretakers of the facility. Mm. They, they handled the keys, they let people in and out if workmen needed to get in and out. And they were also the members, uh, they were also members of a, a resistance movement called Term of Vengeance, one of dozens and dozens of French resistance movements. Hmm. And, and it was just by sheer luck that Joe and Harry were assigned to them to be hidden until they could be evacuated back to England. Hmm. Excellent. This, this is a nice taste of, of the book and, and really, uh, I think will inspire people to, to want to read more. But let me um, let me switch for the sake of time. Let me uh, talk about what you did um, for your research. Uh, sure. Who, who did you talk to? Where did you go? Like archives and locations. Well, I think uh, you know, for any um, military historian working on the American aspects of World War II, the first place you go is the National Archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there are, uh, one of the benefits of doing World War II history is that pretty much everything that happened was written down usually within 12 to 24 hours of the actual event itself. Now, that doesn't mean that all the facts are correct, but it means that you are getting very immediate news. So you look for um, mission reports, interaction reports, the uh, missing air crew reports I mentioned earlier, escape and evasion reports. So I started with those and, and was working out. When I found the connection um, to Yvette and her parents in Paris, um, I hired a, a, a very excellent um, American who's lived in, in Paris for 30 years, a woman named Ellen Hampton, uh, who was one time an AP reporter herself. Uh, and because I don't speak French, uh, she did the initial research in all the French archives hmm. on the on resistance movements, on uh, Napoleon's tomb, on the German units that were stationed there. Uh, and then my wife, who fortunately is fluent in French, uh, she and I went to France. We spent a week in Paris, literally climbing all over um, the buildings that constitute the Hotel des Invalides. Mm. The most interesting part of that was um, American and Allied aviators who were hidden there. Uh, the the complex, the Hotel des Invalides, was you know hospital, museums, and everything else. But there was also a German garrison on one part of the the property, mm. living in barracks. But the museums were open throughout the occupation, so there were probably thousands of visitors a day, most of them German, going in and out of this complex. So very early in the morning, before the gates were opened, the Morens would would sneak these airmen 
um, through the uh, cathedral, up through the attic of the cathedral, and onto the roof, 80 to 90 feet above the ground, of a um, a spot that's right between the golden dome that's right over Napoleon's tomb and the roof of the cathedral that connects to it. Uh-huh. And you would essentially spend the day up there very quietly, um, but you, you can't really be seen from the ground. Uh, and even if you were, most Germans would assume that if you were up there, you had a reason to be up there and you were probably German mm-hmm. or a French worker. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided that if I really wanted to be able to describe this, yeah. <laughs> I would need to go up there. <laughs> and it, it turned out to be uh, a very interesting walk. You go up some almost vertical stairways mm-hmm. and you come out inside the attic of the cathedral. This is a cathedral that was built in the 18th century. <laughs> so it's it's sturdy, but questionable sometimes right and then you walk through there and then up another couple of flights of stairs and suddenly you're out in the open air and it's probably one of the best views of all of paris you'll see you can see the eiffel tower and and uh, you know every landmark in paris almost from up there what i was aware of is that the wind that blows through there is pretty strong and if you're not careful it'll blow you right over the side Oh. And that's an 80 to 90 to 100 foot fall, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. So that was the the best part of being in Paris. But fortunately, this uh, friend of mine, Ellen Hampton, located Yvette Morin, the formerly young French girl, yeah. who at that time was 97 years old um, and living on a farm about a two-hour train ride outside Paris. Wow. So we secured permission for my wife and I to go visit her. And we spent just a wonderful day with her. She, she actually, she and her, her daughter, um, had fixed a complete French lunch for us. Mm-hmm. We had champagne and, uh, I, my, my wife translated my questions and her responses. We recorded the whole thing. It was just a, a glorious day. Oh, yeah. And then when I came back to the States, there was more research. I, I interviewed the relatives of some of the other American airmen mm-hmm. and I think it was especially helpful. Um, as you probably know, Chris, a, a, a B-17 bomber had a 10-man crew, you know, pilot, co-pilot, navigator, bomber, gunners, radio man, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, on Joe Cornell's airplane, the day it was shot down, there was an 11th man, a guy named Jefferson Davis Dixon. And Jeff Dixon had been a, um, a soldier in World War One, And when that conflict ended, he stayed in France and essentially became a millionaire by promoting... Uh, boxing matches and horse races and bicycle races and, you know, other sporting events and musical events. And he just happened to be in New York. He just gotten married uh, right before Pearl Harbor. And as soon as Pearl Harbor was attacked, he went down and immediately reenlisted in the U.S. Army. Hmm. This gentleman was, this, you know, late 40s. Okay. Uh, he was commissioned as an officer. And because he'd been part of a photographic unit in World War One, they made him... Um, a photographer, a motion picture photographer. And a lot of the black and white imagery that we've been seeing for, you know, 70 years of B-17s in flight and being attacked by German fighters, he and other photographers like him shot by flying along on the missions. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, he just happened to pick the wrong airplane on the wrong day because he didn't survive the crash. But I was able to find his daughter, who was only two years old, maybe three years old, when he died and, and doesn't remember him at all. I mean, she has a lot of memorabilia mm-hmm. and she was very helpful in, in providing letters, um, pertaining to, to the crash and, 
And then, of course, they're just tracking down personal documents, letters between Yvette and Joe, and and uh, there were there are a lot of sort of second party descriptions of the relationship between Joe and Yvette, mm-hmm. written by people like Harry and Dick, who who saw them together. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, Joe and Yvette um, actually got engaged officially. They went to a, a local their parish church in Paris, and the Monsignor there officially engaged them. And their intent was that they were going to get married as soon as the war was over. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So where else did you, and and I don't want to ask how it ends, because I think that's something for for people to read and see how that progresses. Exactly, yeah. Um, So where else did, when you were in France, actually, um, I know that the French are very fascinated with their own World War II history and also torn by how, you know, how it progressed. When you were in France, did you get a sense of where people, how did people feel about what you were researching? Every, every person that, that my wife and I came into contact with was absolutely thrilled that we were telling the story. Hmm. Um, and I think part of that was, was because it wasn't the typical, you know, when, when the, uh, Americans and the free French rolled into Paris and there were gunfights and the, you know, um, it, this was a more intimate story, a family story, and and everybody just seemed fascinated by it. And and um, other than one or two line mentions in in a couple of earlier books, nobody had ever heard the story at all. And and uh, that I was able to really broaden it and deepen it and and make the people in it, I think, come alive. Um, and, and just telling the story to the French people that, that we met along the way on trains or in restaurants, they were all fascinated. Did you come across any, um, interesting personal effects or artifacts as you were doing your research? Well, there were a lot of the things that, uh, that Joe Cornwall's stepson, um, showed me, but I also came across in, in doing archival research. There were a lot of um, pictures of, of the unit they were in, the base they were at, you know, guys playing baseball. Um, there, you know, as far as the, the Moran's concerned, the most important artifact was the Hotel des Invalides and Napoleon's tomb themselves. And they, the family was very, very kind and, and uh, allowed me to use photographs secretly taken of Joe and Yvette and Harry and Dick and some uh, Canadian and British uh, aviators. Uh, and they're in the book because, you know, you can imagine that um, taking pictures of these young men uh, to use as souvenirs may not have been the best operational security, but they were very, very important, especially uh, to Yvette once Joe was evacuated back to uh, to England. So um, those photographs were, are probably the most important and, and most engaging and most really emotional um, artifacts that I came across. So without revealing any important plot points um, um, in the story, uh, what, what would you say was the most surprising thing you discovered? Well, uh, I think the first big surprise was that there was an actual love relationship between Joe and Yvette. Um, the second involves the courage of the Moran family. Uh, I'm not going to give away too much, but I will say that not long after Joe uh, evaded back to England, uh, Georges and Denise, the, the parents, and Yvette were all arrested by the Gestapo and sent to concentration camps. Mm. 
And that was a part of the story I hadn't anticipated writing. Um, their time in the camps, um, some of the things they went through, and the incredible heroism and and just um, amazing um, will to live that they demonstrated under just the most brutal conditions you can imagine. Um, I had I'd lived in Germany for five years uh, early in my professional life, and I'd been to Dachau and, and some other sites in Germany. And it's one thing to, you know, see the physical location, but then to read the accounts of people about whom you feel, you almost feel like you're related to them once you've done that much research. Mm-hmm. It was very evocative for me, and uh, I, I did not really expect that. Um, because, as you know, Chris, when you, when you deal with military history, you, you kind of um, tend to not focus necessarily on the brutality of war. Mm. Uh, I also spent time in Sarajevo during the, the actually right at the end of the Bosnian or the siege of Sarajevo. Mm. And I saw something there that I, you know, still would rather I hadn't seen. Mm. Um, so it, when, whenever we write military history, uh, you know, as I said earlier, you have to make sure that people don't lose sight of the actual physical reality for the people involved. And, and, one of the things that really surprised me was how emotional I got describing some of the things that happened in the book. Um, and I knew that I knew that I'd nailed it when I, uh, my wife and I were on a flight to California right before the book uh, came out. She was, she was reading an early copy and she'd read the whole book and was reading the last chapter. And I'd been watching some movie on the plane and I turned around to look at her and she was sobbing. Mm. So I figured, yeah, I, I think I got that. I think I nailed it. So, yeah. So I think one of the, uh, just building on a point you made, one of the things I think people also forget is how during war, how often you have to get past, um, grief that you experience and not just the death of a buddy, um, which obviously is a grievous thing to experience, but just day to day, you know, something horrible happens, just move on. Don't, you know, you have to keep doing the job. Um, mm-hmm. so it sounds like your book addresses maybe some of, some of that. It does, um, because there are a lot of things that the people in the book have to get past. Um, there are some very joyous things in the book as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a gut check, um, about how real wartime can be, even if you're not in full battle rattle, you know, somewhere in a foxhole. Uh, and being in occupied Paris, uh, was, was a, not at all a pleasant experience for anybody. Um, even in fact, the, the Germans, uh, they lived certainly better than the French, but, uh, and especially once the, the armed resistance got, got moving, you know, uh, the Germans weren't all that safe in, in Paris either. Mm. Did you use any German records for any part of the I did. Uh, and fortunately that's where my German came in. Um, there are, uh, there are several great, um, Archives. There's the Militaire Archive in Freiburg, which is, you know, German military history. Um, but there's also, a, it's actually in a, a UN organization called the International Tracing Service, which was set up after the war to allow people to use original German records to trace what happened to relatives, friends, um, things like that. All of those records are still um, extant 
although many, many records obviously were destroyed after the war and the bombing of Germany and everything. But I was able to um, locate the actual index cards dealing with each of the Marin family members' time in the concentration camps, um, the, the luggage they brought with them, you know, what jewelry was stolen from them. Uh, German, the, the World War II German war machine was generally meticulous in record keeping. Uh, and as horrific as that was, it does um, offer a wealth of really factual data um, for the historian who's digging into it. So they were they were incredibly important. And, and in the in the book, I acknowledge all of the uh, archivists and um, sort of volunteer uh, researchers who assisted in this project, but in Germany, in France, and the United States, uh, and it's it's quite a group of people. Did you have any um, particular problems getting the book finished or published? It sounds like it went smoothly. Uh, <laughs> it did. Uh, you know, I, I suffer from an illness that a lot of um, writers have, and it's called research rapture. Uh, I, I can get so into the research that I'll suddenly say, oh, wait a minute, I actually have to write this book, <laughs> and I, I don't have quite as many months left as I thought I did. Uh, but... I've, I've done that on on all of the books, not just the, these past five, but the ones before that, uh, and it, it all tends to work out pretty well. And and I learned to write um, in a newsroom bullpen sort of atmosphere, uh, where somebody would walk in and say, "Hey, look, I need um, a thousand words on X, and I need it in twenty minutes." Yeah. So you spend the first ten minutes figuring out what X is, and then the last ten minutes actually writing a piece. Yeah. So, so um, what's your next uh, writing project? You know, <laughs> my agent would ask, was asking me <laughs> just the other day. Um, I, I have several ideas. Um, I, I, you know, um, I'm still in sort of the cool down period of this. I actually finished writing the book about five months ago, five and a half months ago. Um, but then there's all the um, uh, copy editing, the, they, the copy editors will send questions back to me and I have to figure that out. And then I did a final copy edit of, of the book myself because I am, after all, an editor. Excuse me. And um, so things have been rather busy. Plus, my son just got married this past weekend. Yeah. So I haven't been thinking all that much about which of the several ideas I'll, I'll follow up on. It will be a World War II project, and I hope it will be one that, like Escape from Paris, will um, pull people in, teach them something, reach them in, in some emotional way, um, and uh, and at the same time, tell a cracking good story. Just a quick aside here. Have you ever started to research a story for, for an article or book and just not found enough and had to put it aside? All the time, all the time. Because you, you'll find something you say, oh, wait, wait. I should pull on this thread because it seems really interesting. And then you realize there's not much thread there. Um, uh, so unfortunately that happens more often than not, uh, because the kind of stories I want to tell take a lot of information, mm -hmm. uh, which means a lot of research. And sometimes there's just not a whole lot of there, there, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, and you have to be willing to be pretty brutal and just say, okay, on to the next one. Because, you know, this is, um, I take this very seriously. It's it's uh, it's it's a I guess an art form 
Uh, it's one of the few things I've ever been even reasonably good at. So I, I take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to waste my time getting into something that won't turn out to be a complete story. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you and your works on the web? They can go to stephenhardingbooks.com. That's probably the fastest way. It it gives them an overview of uh, these five books that DeCapo has done. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a Facebook page. All you have to do is Google Stephen Harding, and usually Last Battle in Europe is a good thing to Google, and it will take you right to my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's pretty much the most direct way. And as I mentioned, I'm the editor of, Military History Magazine, oh. which is um, our company produces uh, the largest number of history magazines in the United States. Mm. Uh, plus, we publish Army Times, Navy Times, Air Force Times. Oh. So anybody who is in or around the military or government uh, will know of, of these titles. Mm. And all they have to do, go, do is go to our, our website, which is www.historynet.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can take a look at my magazine or, or any of the other magazines, or they can flip over to the newspaper side. Mm-hmm. And just for uh, listeners, that's Stephen as it's spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-H-A-R-D-I-N-G.com. Is that correct? <laughs> Thanks for that, Chris. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Um, all right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or words? No, I just appreciate your interest, and uh, and I hope people will uh, will take a look at Escape from Paris because I think they'll enjoy it, and I think it's probably ultimately going to be a movie. So you might want to read the book before the movie comes out. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it looks like a great book. So uh, yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chris. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.